At the end of last week's chapel, we celebrated what it was that as a body we were able to accomplish last year with our, our giving project that came towards Christmas. I promised you at the end of last week's chapel that today we would roll out the idea for what we want to do to, as a community together this semester. And it ties in incredibly well with what it is we've been talking about, the healing ministry of Christ in the world, the mighty deeds that he enacts in order to show us what the kingdom of God looks like and what his followers are going to do. So there will be a portion of this that is just simply education and awareness, but there also comes a time when the body of Christ is called to flex its muscle and engage a little more with our hands and what the things that we participate in and do great things in Christ's name. One of the ideas, and of course each year these come from the students, so one of the ideas that has really came to the surface recently, in a, in, and obviously an issue that you guys have been passionate about and indicated that towards us, was an interest in the overwhelming amount of human slavery and trafficking that has been taking place in our world, and what it is that Christians need to be doing in response to this. So before we explain what this event looks like, and how this year we're not going to shave foreheads on a stage, but we're going to find a way to engage all of you in how we're going to do this, Here's a little video to tell the story and see the faces of the type of people that we're going to do something to help be engaged in the healing ministry of Christ with. So this is the target establishment. First suspect, you for our victims. And remember, if there's a hazard or dangerous situation, move yourself to a position of comfort. We saw about 1,200 little kids and found out that they were in fact trafficked and they were in fact slaves. These little kids are on this boat. They are not fed. They are abused beyond imagination. We have operations all over the world rescuing people from slavery because today there are criminals who abuse children, sell girls. How old is she? 12. 12? How much? 30? Yeah, yeah, maybe. And force families into slavery. Criminals prey on the easiest target, the world's poor, because they expect no one to defend them. But today, there are thousands of people gathering to seek justice for those in slavery. We are a group of lawyers, counselors, activists, and supporters. We are called International Justice Mission. Together, we form the largest international anti-slavery organization in the world. But slavery won't come to an end until criminals know they can't get away with it. So we partner with local police to arrest and prosecute criminals. This sends a message to slave owners. We will not go away. We stay with the survivors until they are healed. 
until they are free. Natulungan po ako ng IJM sa pamamigitan po na sa case ko, sa pagtulong po nila na ma-overcome ko po yung, yung fear. Each year, we rescue thousands of slaves and protect millions around the world. We are transforming how justice systems protect their citizens. To those who are still enslaved, we promise to find you. We will get you home to your families so you can have the freedom you deserve. The project we're about to embark on, IJM will be the primary beneficiary of the funds that we will raise and the lives that we will be um, helping to participate in creating freedom for. One of the things that Christ said in announcing his arrival is that he came to set the captive free. And tragically, in our own time, there are more slaves now than ever before in human history. And so this isn't simply a metaphor of our imprisonment to sin and to death, but actual physical imprisonment for many and many of our own brothers and sisters. So we're going to see what we can do together. Um, entering into the healing ministry of Christ with this, an event um, we're going to call Dresember. Um, this is an idea that was not invented by us. Uh, this has been done before. Dresember is an existing ministry that supports IJM. And the idea is that in the month of December, um, ladies, we're going to ask you to wear um, a, a dress. And the reason why we're doing this is the, the idea is to recapture not only femininity, um, but human dignity. Christ came to make us whole again and celebrate. So the celebration of human dignity and, um, and our own humanity that Christ came to give us back. So women will do this by putting on a dress. Guys, um, we're going to ask you, um, for anybody who will participate in this campaign with us during the month of December, to put a tie on um, every day. And um, I understand that the theater department has lots of extra ties for any who don't. I know you can also get t-shirts where they are screen printed on um, in case you aren't feeling quite classy enough. Um, I've got some extra bow ties in my closet. I know President Hoekstra does. And we would be happy to help you out. And this is a way for us just to do something together as a campus community. And girls, you might say, that's terrible. You're doing this in December. That's the wrong time of year to wear dresses. Um, it's never a good time to be in the uncomfortable place to be a person in slavery either. So part of this is some sort of way of entering into a, a small, tiny form of solidarity with people who suffer and struggle as well. And so men, if you feel like a tie is suffocating every time you put one on, try being a slave. I, I guess that's sort of the idea behind all of this. So we want to encourage you to step into this with us. And you will receive an email from us upcoming um, about all the ways that you can embark in this and how the fundraising for this event is also going to take place. So education, awareness, and flexing the muscle of this body of Christ in the healing ministry of Jesus. We pray with me? Father, all semester long as we go to your word and we see how it is that your son demonstrated your healing hand. How you call your people back. How you reclaim what is lost. How you restore dignity. How you make us whole again. 
And Father, we celebrate today that these are not simply stories from the past, but that your healing ministry is alive and well through groups like IJM and so many others who would be your hands and feet, your mind and heart in this world. We thank you that your spirit is alive and working. And now we ask too, Lord, as we turn back to your word and study once again how it is that you enact mighty deeds. Teach us again whatever it is you have for us today in this text. In Jesus' name, amen. So imagine with me for a minute that there was like this campus in the middle of a prairie and and there were these young people who went there from different genders and once in a while they notice each other and um, and somebody gets a BA or a, a BS as they walk across the stage, and maybe an MRS or an MR along the way, something like this. It could, it could happen, okay? It could happen. And if it did, in one of these like romantic relationships as they move along, there's an exchange that takes place between two individuals. If you're ever going to get to know somebody, there has to be a process of self-revelation, self-disclosure vulnerability. You can't really be loved unless you are known. And it's the exchange of this vulnerability back and forth which actually purchases the intimacy that develops within a relationship. One of the things we see in this similar relationship of of Christ's love for his bride and for the church as he walks with the disciples is this continual self-revelation, a movement towards intimacy by showing them who he really is. And as we've looked at all semester long, we realize that many biblical scholars point out to us that each of Jesus' ministries are not just simply an act of healing, but a statement as well about his character. They are an enacted parable in teaching. He is showing us who he is, what his heart feels for us, and what it is that he wants to accomplish in the world. So the text we're going to pick up reading this morning is from Mark chapter 6. You remember last week we looked at the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And now we're going to follow immediately on that story's heels. In fact, there's a little break, sort of a subtitle in our, most of our Bible translations here. But in all reality, these passages really belong closely together. So as we look at the next story that is to come, I want you to have the feeding of the 5,000 in the background of your mind. Because it sets this up. From Mark chapter 6, verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida, where he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. And he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. 
When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak. And all who touched him were healed. As we learn how to get better and better at reading the gospel stories, one of the things I've been trying to encourage us to do as we walk through Mark this semester is ask ourselves always, why does the passage come before this? Why does the other passage come after this? Why do the gospel writers arrange the stories in the way that they do? And why do they pick the stories that they do? You see, that question is so significant when coming across this text because most biblical scholars, the majority of the New Testament scholastic community, would make a pretty solid argument that the Gospel of Mark is the first Gospel written somewhere between the years 52 and 56 AD in the city of Rome as Peter tells the story, that Peter is the voice behind the Gospel of Mark, that it's Peter's account of all that he experienced that goes into what is being told in these stories. Now, if that's the case, and I guess in this context, even if it isn't, one of the questions you have to ask yourself as a reader in coming across this text, and if this is Peter especially telling the story, in Matthew's gospel, this is the account right after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus goes away to pray, they take off on the boat over to Gennesaret, and on the way, Jesus shows up walking on the water and then invites Peter out of the boat who then walks on the water. Why is that part of it not in this story? Why did Mark leave that out? Why did maybe even Peter leave that out? Because I want to tell you, if sometime between now and next week's chapel, I walk on water, I'm probably going to tell you about it. It's sort of a big deal, right? If Peter experienced that, and for him, that wasn't the most significant thing about what was happening that night. So what was it? What does he want us to, what does Mark want us to see? What does maybe even Peter want us to see in this story? Somebody walking on the water is a pretty cool sermon. You too can do these same sorts of things. Maybe it's a story about how much faith we need to have then. Maybe it's a sermon then about all the things that we can do and the authority and the power of Christ. That the one who holds the molecules of water together also is the one who walks on top of them. The one who separated them at the beginning of the creation is now the one who commands them in the wind and in the waves as he walks upon them. And then invites us to do the same. That's a pretty good sermon. But that's not where Mark goes. And maybe it's not even the part that Peter wants to tell. When the passage starts off, the first word we're given is immediately. It's one of the themes in Mark's gospel. His gospel speeds along at a quicker, more torrent pace than any of the others. But why immediately? Our best historical guesses are that when every time a large crowd like this seemed to get together in the gospels, they had political ambitions for what they wanted Jesus to do. Maybe the disciples were getting caught up in this. Maybe the disciples were getting caught up in the fact that they had just been a part of this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, of Israel in a wilderness place, God feeding them again. This is like the Exodus kind of stuff. This is when God delivers his people. Does God want to deliver his people from Rome in this moment now too? Just like he did back then? 
Like that was when God flexed his muscle. That was when Israel received its identity in the Passover moment, in the walking through the water, in the feeding in the wilderness. It was their identity that God sees us. God will deliver us. God will always be powerful for us. Maybe the crowd had political ambitions. Maybe the disciples had it going to their head. It says later on in this passage that their hearts were hardened by the experience. Something wasn't working right. And so Jesus sweeps them away and orchestrates the movements of what's about to follow. It's no accident. Not only that, but Jesus goes away to pray. This is a distinctive thing that happens three particular times in Mark's gospel, and each time Jesus goes away to pray, a few particular things happen thematically in Mark's gospel. Number one, they're in a solitary place. Number two, he goes away alone. Number three, it's always nighttime. And number four, and I think most significantly, it always happens right after the disciples totally don't get something. And so Jesus, one has to believe, is going away to pray on their behalf. For his own disciples' misunderstanding, they don't get who he is. They don't get the significance of what has just happened. They're baffled. And so Jesus goes away to petition the Father on their behalf. And he's their advocate. As he comes back across them in this ghost-like scene, which is really odd in the Gospels. Uh, in fact, this term is, only occurs here to describe anything ever in the entire New Testament. Which says that they were straining at the oars. And this word straining to describe the physical battle that they were engaged in is the same word every time used in the Gospels when we talk about someone being tormented by a demon. So this isn't just they were having a rough go of it. I mean, even if the weather's really, really rough, you should be able to make it across this lake in six to eight hours of rowing in a boat that time with the technology they had. But based on the way the timetable gets set up within the passage, we're led to believe it's probably been a good 10 hours at this point in time, and they're just straining in the, uh, into the wind. Iowans can relate to this. And, and Jesus just seems to be walking past them. And it's, the passage seems to indicate that Jesus is about to pass by them. And this is where I think it becomes significant and why the passage becomes so important. Because it's hearkening back to other moments in history. Every Israelite reader reading this would be like, I remember the Old Testament stories when God passed by. They were kind of a big deal too. Moses encountering God. Exodus chapter 33 verses 19 to 23. And the Lord said, I will cause my, all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock, and when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Similarly, in 1 Kings chapter 9, Elijah has a similar experience where God passes by and he's hidden away and he can't see much of anything of God. In language that mimics those Old Testament texts, Jesus is about to pass by. The one who has fed his people in the wilderness, the one who has command over the water. This is very much like the Exodus story. Is this the Yahweh that we were waiting for? Is this the deliverance of God's people? Is it really God who is showing up? Is the question that the reader is supposed to be asking. 
But something different happens here that doesn't happen in Exodus and it doesn't happen in 1 Kings. And something significant happens in Jesus' revelation of who he is in verse 50. Take courage, he says. It is I. Don't be afraid. This construction of it is I, this is the the I am construction that happens when Yahweh reveals his name to Moses at the burning bush. This is the I am that we hear about, the ego eimi. This is the strong form of wording this in the New Testament. Jesus saying, I am. Take courage, I am. All those doubts you had wondering, is this Yahweh? Has he come? Will we be delivered? Do you still see us in our suffering and in our struggle? And his answer is, yes, I am. And as they're straining against the oars, or as they're caught in the storm crossing the same lake in a boat only a few chapters beforehand, Jesus' message is still the same. I'm not taking you to a lake where there are no storms. And I'm not telling you that next time and next week there isn't going to be another storm. And I'm not telling you that the pain is going to go away. And I'm not telling you that everything's going to be easy. Here is your comfort. Here is your courage. Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. The single greatest comfort the disciples could possibly receive is that Jesus shows up and gets into the boat and joins them in the moment. When John begins his gospel and talks about that God has now come and tabernacled and made his dwelling among us, we see throughout the course of the gospels that Jesus wants to get even closer and even closer as he's setting the stage for the arrival of the Holy Spirit and the third person of the Trinity is going to move not only into the neighborhood but into our very being. And God is not going to be this distant character that we can't even see his face and we're going to hide in terror from him. We've got to approach in reverence. He's coming and he's coming closer. Jesus is coming and he's coming to them in the boat and then he gets in and he keeps going closer and closer and the movement of discipleship is the allowance of God to penetrate the deepest parts of who we are. He's coming closer. There's a trajectory that happens over the narrative of the entire biblical story and it is that God is moving into us. God wants to be so close to us. God wants to envelop us in his love. God wants us to see his kingdom coming through us. His love is so overwhelming, it can't even stay outside of us anymore. It's got to get into the boat. It's got to come so close that it is right there. It's got to move all the way inside of us and carry us. Here is your comfort in whatever storm that you have. It isn't that God sees you. It isn't that he promises to take it away. It isn't that he makes your life easier if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Is that he comes in to the boat. And he doesn't take your boat and take it to a lake where there is no storm. He simply enters in. And he is there. Take courage. I am. Don't be afraid. God is moving. God is still moving. Your movement of discipleship and mine is to be the same as the disciples and ever opening up further and further as God penetrates us more deeply, as strongholds come down, as captives are set free, as more and more of the shalom of God is introduced into the world through your hands, through your minds, through your hearts, just an ever, ever, ever increasing Total surrender. Your life is a pursuit of total surrender before the love of God. Your life is a pursuit of, can I, can I open up my mind and my imagination even farther to grasp how big and high and deep and wide is the love of God for me that is in Christ Jesus? And he sees me in every storm, and he will not walk by. He is coming in, and he wants every part of my life. 
One more time, the disciples are in the storm. Peter gets out of the boat and actually walks on the water, but that's not the part of the story he wants you to hear. The most significant part in all of this is that God is coming in. As you contemplate your own discipleship, is that the movement, the penetration of the word of God into our own lives? Because I think that's what Jesus wanted. That he just moves and moves and get more. And may he have more of you today than he did yesterday. And may he have more of you tomorrow than he has today. And may your life be a complete and utter pursuit of total surrender. As Yahweh doesn't just move into the neighborhood, but he moves all the way in. And then heals us from the inside back out, creating streams of living water. It becomes the leaves on the trees that are for the healing of the nations. That's his plan. You are a huge part of that as a recipient and a beneficiary of the work and the strength of our Savior. Will you pray with me? Father God, this morning our hearts simply give thanks. For you are not a God who stays at a distance. And you are not elusive, and you are not fickle. You are coming for us and always have been. You moved into the neighborhood and then you moved into us. And Father, in our own voices, in our own heads, for our own hearts right now, we declare before you in this moment, we want even more. We ask that the work, through the work of your Spirit, you would name the strongholds within our life that need to come down. That you would reveal to us the places where your Spirit is at work in the front lines of transformation in our life and in our communities. Where you are calling us to do something entirely new. Where there is a next level of surrender that we have not even dared to imagine was possible in you. Father, we pray for a new level of revival in our own lives, a greater desire and comprehension of what it means when you move more fully in. Excite our spirits at the thought of a greater surrender to your spirit. May you find your home in us. Father, renovate whatever it is that you need to get done. We're saying that we are yours. We want to be disciples who are changed and transformed. Father, have your way in us. Through the word became flesh and your spirit within. All for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We please rise and receive a blessing. You know, we do this thing at the end not to give you a blessing because you didn't have one. It's to remind you of the blessing that already sits upon you. For you are Christ's own, bought at a price, and then indwelled with his Holy Spirit to do great things for the glory of the Father, through the power of the Son, and the work of the Holy Spirit. And all of them are enamored with you. Amen.